Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I get so uh, fortunate once a month to talk to Ken Samples. He's a philosopher and theologian. He's at reasons.org, uh, and he loves to uh, help people understand the reasonableness and the relevance of Christianity's truth claims. He does it beautifully. He's a senior research fellow at Reasons to Believe, and he's authored many books, including Christianity Cross Examined, Classic Christian Thinkers, and God Among Sages. Ken, welcome. Hello, Bill. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. I am delighted that we are talking about today's subject, which is do life's most meaningful realities point to God? It's a very provocative question. I wish I would have written it myself, but I haven't. You wrote it. Well, I get the privilege of sharing it with you and your many listeners. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I love apologetics. You're really good at it, and it's going to be really good to navigate our way through this. I know you're going to talk about a number of things that demonstrate God's existence and his involvement in the universe, and I think this is going to be a strong hour. So where would you like to start? Well, maybe a little bit of discussion about the reasoning process that kind of goes into this. Uh, Bill, one of the things I would say is that uh, what I'm going to talk about is not deductive proofs or certainties. This is rather than deductive or inductive, this is what we call in logic abductive reasoning. Now that doesn't have anything to do with UFOs taking you out of your house. Oh good. Things like that. Abductive reasoning um, relates to plausibility rather than induction probability and deduction certainty. And so what I'm going to be arguing is that these are pointers to God. They don't, they don't necessarily prove God, but they are a, a plausible uh, and expected expectation. So that's kind of uh, the beginning. And of course, what I like to do with students and uh, people at the church and my family is I always try to give them something they can use as a way of of remembering, and so I like uh, I like to call this my clear pointers to God, and I use that word clear as a both a memory device and a, and a guiding principle. Mm-hmm. So we do have an acronym that we can uh, look at today, uh, clear, and I think the first one is the cosmos, and I'm already fascinated. Yeah, I think what's interesting, Bill, is that. Uh, you know, at, in the beginning of this, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, there were many scientists who were secular, and they thought we would discover a universe that had always been here. Uh, it was just a brute reality. There was no need to ask where it came from or why it was here. It was just part of reality. But by the middle of the 20th century, uh, there were many competing views about the universe, but the one that has caught hold, the one ha- that has 
been largely accepted for the last 50 or 60 years in the scientific community says that the universe had an origin. It had a beginning. Now, there are some people who still question that, some scientists who question it, but here we have a universe and uh, the model of explanation is that it had a beginning. It, it had a origin. And of course, anything that begins requires a cause. So people began asking the question, where did the universe come from? Why is it here? And a further development about the universe is that it exhibits complex fine tuning. So for example, uh, when we look at the laws of physics, or we look at the fundamental constants in the universe, or we look at the very early beginning of the universe, you have to have all of these things fine-tuned. And it's almost as if, if you can vision kind of uh, uh, dials, uh, they all have to be dialed in just right. If they're too much or too little, we wouldn't have the universe that we have. And so these ideas of, that come to us from cosmology, and, and Bill, there's, there's no debate anymore about fine-tuning. It's accepted. The question is, how do we best explain a universe that had an origin, that has order, that has laws, that has principles, and was fine-tuned? Now, um, again, I'm going to use an abductive argument here. And an argument is really a pretty simple thing. You make a claim, that would be your conclusion. That's the point you want people to accept. It's what you want to prove or demonstrate. The premises, that's your support, your evidence, uh, the facts, reasons, arguments, etc. And then there always has to be a, what we call a link between the conclusion and the premises, that the conclusion follows logically from the premises. Well, here's this argument, and we can come back to it a couple times as we talk, but premise one, the surprising fact that, that you have profound, meaningful realities like the singular beginning, the complex fine-tuning of the universe, we encounter those things in life. Premise two, but if Christianity were true, if the Bible were true, these meaningful realities, that is creation and design and purpose, would be an expected matter of course. So the conclusion in the abductive argument then says, therefore, there is reason to conclude, there's reason to suspect that Christianity is true. That is, the world looks like the way it would if the Bible were true. Mm, so good. Ken, can we go back to the fine-tuning of the universe? Would you say more about that, what that means? Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's think about uh, let's think about the fundamental constants. So here we're talking about uh, electromagnetism. We're talking about gravity. Uh, physicists talk about the strong and weak nuclear forces. Well, all of those are necessary for us to have a universe, and and then we'd have to add other things to have a fine-tuned universe. Um, and we'd have to add other things if we want to have the right Earth, the, the right uh, solar system, the right atmosphere. That is, all of these things have to be fine-tuned to allow for, for life. But if, if gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, if they were a bit stronger, 
life wouldn't be possible. If they were weaker, life wouldn't be possible. So you have all of these dials that have to be dialed in just right. And there are so many of them that the probability that this could have happened by pure circumstance, by chance, is not a reasonable conclusion. Yeah, and when you think about that, it's overwhelming evidence to anybody, I would think, that there is a designer behind this magnificent universe that we're living in. And if you if you look at what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, he says that we have an awareness of God. We know there is a God. Of course, he later says that there is the tendency, given our fallen, broken, sinful nature, to suppress that knowledge. But when we look at Scripture, Scripture seems to indicate these kinds of things. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they exhibit knowledge. We, we are aware of God in our conscience. And so these are, these are very powerful. These are very profound, meaningful realities. Now, it's not that there aren't people who challenge these kinds of things. You know, some people will propose, well, maybe there is a world ensemble. That is, maybe there is a near infinite number of universes that all kind of sparked each other and we, we won the cosmic jackpot by getting the universe where everything is perfectly designed. Well, there are lots of problems with that. Number one, we've never observed any of these universes, and observation is a critical part of science. Uh, two, why propose a near-infinite number of things where one God can explain all of these kinds of things? So it isn't that there aren't objections. But, Bill, I think it's reasonable to say that on planet Earth, over the centuries, human beings, probably 90 to 95 percent of human beings, have believed that there was a God. And if you probably asked them, they would might say, it's common sense. That is, you know, look at the world I live in. Look at the design. Look at the seeming beauty and purpose of these things. Mm -hmm. So that would be the C uh, in that word clear. C-L-E-A-R would be the word cosmos. Mm -hmm. Ken, do you remember as a kid when you found out that the, that the, uh, this earth was spinning at about a thousand miles an hour? Do you remember that information as a kid? Yeah, yes, I certainly do. Yeah. What, what, what were you thinking? It's like, okay, why isn't the ocean splashing water everywhere? And why am I able to even walk? Yeah, exactly. I, I, maybe a parallel, maybe an analogy is when you're flying in a plane you're flying 700 miles an hour, but does it feel like you're moving that fast or that you're just sitting there in your chair? Mm -hmm. So there is, the, there is the phenomenon that is taking place outside, but then there is your personal experience both on a plane and standing on, on Earth. Now, again, some of, these, some of these principles of physics seem amazing and, and, and provocative, but, but that's exactly the reality. We live in this, this remarkable world that seemingly has all of the fine-tuned characteristics to allow not only for life, not just bacterial life, not just chromosomal life, but for intelligent life, human beings, uh, to have a habitat in which to live. Mm -hmm. 
My guest is Ken Samples. He's a philosopher and theologian. We're talking today about uh, do life's most meaningful realities point to God. We're going to talk about uh, life next. We talked about cosmos, if you just joined us. And then we're going to talk about ethics, abstractions, and religion. That's all coming up next. Be right back. So glad to have Ken Samples as my guest. That's his walk-up music, and he is a philosopher and theologian. Today we're talking about do life's most meaningful realities point to God, and so far, yes, we started with cosmos. And uh, Ken, I was also reminded, too, of that the first rule of biogenesis, all life uh, comes from life. So we're going to have to trace it back somewhere. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, if we have a if we have a profound phenomenon before us, like the universe, like life, like consciousness, whatever it may be, if it, if, it ha- if it came into being, we have a reasonable right to say, well, where did it come from? What is the best explanation? And, and that's the characteristic of this abductive reasoning. You, you know, it's, it's the way detectives reason. They, they walk into a crime scene, they look at the data, they come up with an explanation, right? Mm-hmm. A doctor, you, you go to the doctor, he looks at your chart, he takes tests, uh, you know, he, he examines you, he comes up with an explanatory explanation, a diagnosis. This is a very common, this may be the most common way people reason. And, and uh, again, I would refer to it as kind of a diagnostic type of reasoning. Now, again, I'm not arguing that these have to be proofs. Although some people will put them into uh, traditional arguments and argue deductively, but I like this uh, abduction because it's so common to people. If I'm looking out the blinds on Saturday morning, sleeping in, I, I peek through the blinds, I see the street is wet, I immediately search my mind for an explanation. It must have rained. No, you're thinking, I don't have to do yard work today. Well, that's an that's a added benefit that comes <laughs> right. from that. All right, let's, uh, we're going to use this acronym uh, CLEAR, and Cosmos was first. Let's go to life. Yeah, think about our, think about our lives. I mean, uh, human life involves consciousness. We, we're conscious beings. We have, we have thoughts. We have experiences. We, have, we, we sense things. And we have what philosophers call in our consciousness what we call aboutness, that is, Right, right now, I can, I can be thinking about Australia, or I can be thinking about, um, you know, uh, a, a thunderstorm. It, it may not even exist, but I can think about those things. So to be conscious, I have a, I have a mind. I have, uh, I'm self-aware. How did we get consciousness? Where did consciousness come from? And some people, Bill, would argue that explaining consciousness uh, may be the, the most difficult issue. Uh, the origin of life is another issue. The, the origin of mathematics, all of those things are, are meaningful. 
But you think about our life, we're conscious beings, we're also creatures that have free agency, that is, we have, we, we not only have a mind, but we have a will, we can engage in activities. Um, you know, further, our, our life seems to exhibit uh, purpose, there seems to be something behind all of this. And uh, I would argue that, again, as we look at that, that is a, that's something we would expect if God existed. That would be something we would expect if, uh, if Christianity were true. Mm. So many people, I mean, everyone who is born wants to be loved and wants to be uh, considered and noticed and cared for. And you know, these, are, these are things that God just hardwired into us. You know, if you if you take if you take the the anthropology from the Bible, if you take the idea that we've been created in the image of God, that we are we are creatures who have uh, we have moral capacities, we have intellectual capacities, we have spiritual capacities. Uh, exactly right. Human beings are are looking for meaning and purpose in our life. We we wonder. Where did I come from? What is this life about? And and again, if we reason abductively, uh, I think the Bible has a credible uh, explanatory explanation of of the human condition. It it also explains our our fallenness. If I could refer to Blaise Pascal, the the great seventeenth century French physicist, mathematician, inventor, uh, became a Christian later in life. Uh, Pascal said that humans are an enigma, a mix of greatness and wretchedness. Greatness because of the image of God, wretchedness because of the fall. Well, Islam doesn't believe in the fall. Um, uh, you know, many philosophical systems deny the any kind of fallenness of human beings. So humans seem to be exceptional creatures, but they're also broken creatures exactly what I think the Bible proposes to us. Mm-hmm. And then, Ken, what about self-consciousness? I mean, that that is uh, something that we all suffer, struggle with for the most part, in some capacity. Yeah, this is a, you know, this is a very profound part of being a human being. We are, we are self-aware, we're self-conscious. I mean, the animals are incredible. They have many qualities and characteristics that are unique. Some of the animals on Earth have, you know, more profound um, conscious states than others. But it seems like human beings are really the only one who engage in, you know, a deep sense of reflection. Uh, they, we think about our death. We think about our life. Uh, we ask. Uh, and we seek answers to existential questions. Those are things that other creatures don't seem to do. And again, that's part of our mind. I would argue that's part of our soulishness, uh, our capacity to to reflect. In, in fact, Bill, I think that it is Christianity that kind of lays the foundation for the whole field of psychology because it essentially says there is an inner you, and there are issues that affect that inner you, and you want to bring out that. You want to understand what's, what's happening inside your mind, inside your soul, 
So Freud wasn't the first one to look at self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably it's St. Augustine is the first one to develop the idea of we can examine ourselves because we're a living soul. Mm-hmm. And then, Ken, in I think it's John 12, we hear about a group of Jewish leaders who really did believe that Jesus was who he, who he said he was, but I think because of their fear of uh, they didn't confess him openly because I think what they feared is what other people might have thought and and the consequence of maybe a, a public confession would have been too difficult. So maybe that kept them from becoming followers. It's those self-conscious fears were are oftentimes a, a great motivation. That's exactly right. Uh, we are we are motivated by many things. Um, you know, we we're motivated sometimes by by reasonable and rational things. Other times we're motivated by irrational, you know, bias or prejudice, or by uh, our, you know, not wanting to lose face or being looked down upon. I mean, there are many things that that motivate our beliefs. And to be able to to stop and to reflect upon those things and to say, hey, is this, why and how am I being influenced? That's that's a very important thing. Many secular people propose, Bill, that you know they make decisions only based on rational considerations. Religious people, well, you know, they make decisions based upon emotional or irrational decisions. I don't think so. I, I think that human beings are all susceptible to bias, to prejudice. Uh, all of us can be mistaken about our beliefs, and therefore we want to be careful and diligent about these things. Uh, such a good point, Ken. You, you hear of people that say that exact thing. I, I only make rational decisions, scientific ones. I, 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 yet there's people that go home and chant over crystals. A- absolutely. They, they, people are influenced. Uh, people's, all of our beliefs uh, are open to testing and, and evaluation and I, I, I think sometimes we uh, are not self-aware in the fact that we don't understand that there are many things that, that may have influenced us. Mm-hmm. Talking to Ken Samples, and we're tackling, uh, do life's most meaningful realities point to God? And they certainly do. We're going through a list of them. We just covered uh, cosmos and life. We're going to also talk about ethics, abstractions, and religion. So you're not going to want to go anywhere. And we're going to take a little break and we come back. We'll continue with Ken Samples, who's both a philosopher and a theologian. I'm always glad to have him on once a month. He comes to us from uh, reasons.org. You can head over there, check it out. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump 
Welcome to the show. If you just jumped in your car, we are talking to Ken Samples, who's a philosopher and a theologian. We're talking today about do life's most meaningful realities point to God? And um, Ken uses what he calls the best explanation apologetics to demonstrate God's existence and involvement in the universe. And we're, he's explaining it with um, a nice acronym today that says uh, says clear, and it says uh, stands for cosmos, life, ethics, abstractions, and religion. There, I was able to spit that one out, Ken. Did a good job. Oh, uh, thanks. Sometimes the uh, acronyms get to me. So uh, let, let's move on to ethics. Yeah, now we're talking about goodness, right? Now we're talking about morality. Um, there, there are things in life that seem to have a, a prescriptive nature that is an oughtness to them. You know, we there's a lot of discussion in our culture today about the slavery of the past. I mean, somebody would own another individual as if they were property, uh, work them 12 hours a day, um, take, the, take the value of that work and, and benefit the, the slave owner, uh, treat people as if they're an object. Well, uh, that to me strikes me as deeply morally wrong. And of course, I would ground that by saying all people are made in the image of God, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their country of origin, whether they're male or female, all human beings have a, a dignity and a value. Or another form of slavery that we see today, Bill, where young boys, young girls, young men, young women are kidnapped and sold into a life of slavery, happens all over the world. I mean, do I need to say to anybody that that is evil? Mm, no. That is, it, it is so profoundly, it is such a deep violation of what is good, we designate it as evil. Well, where does morality come from? Uh, how, do we, how do we ground it? I mean, if there's evil in the world, then we know that there is also goodness because evil is the violation of that goodness. Where does the sense of ought, um, and, I, and I don't think any of the other secular uh, explanations about morality really, really wash. Like, well, you know, uh, we, maybe evolution has given us certain instincts or uh, utilitarianism. We'll just do what is good for the greatest number of people. No, there, there seems to be, it seems to me that, uh, you know, abusing a child, that is as wrong as, you know, the moon or the sun are in the sky. Uh, it's, it's a deep, profound awareness. It, it's not something that you see with your senses. It's something you sense within your own moral conscience. So where, where do these prescriptive moral principles come from? Our, our moral duties, uh, and even people who violate them, uh, yeah, they, they may be afraid that they'll be, you know, captured and punished for it. But even people who violate them have an awareness that, you know, what I'm doing isn't right or what I'm doing is wrong and I'm trying to cover it up. I, I think to be a human being, morality is one of the most critical features of our existence. And if there is a God, and if that God has revealed his law in the Bible, such as Moses, um, 
then then we can have a firm foundation for that morality. Mm-hmm. Well said, Ken. Um, I, I also think about, you know, confusing kids about their gender in front of their peers should be criminal as well. Well, I mean, th- think about these ideas. Um, I mean, they're they're deeply profound ideas. I mean, when I give logic examples, I will say something like, you know, well, Joan is a, a mother, therefore she's a woman. I mean, when people start rethinking people's genders or, or human designations, they're not only going against traditional morality, Bill, they're going against logic and biology. Mm-hmm. And that's troubling. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when I hear that conversation, Ken, about, you know, when, when I think of people that are struggling with certain things and they, they say, well, I'm struggling with my uh, orientation or my identity or whatever. And I think, okay, well, aren't we all struggling at some level with a lot of stuff? That's how complicated life is. Isn't much of life a significant struggle? I think that's exactly right. I, I think that, you know, grasping your your humanity coming to understand your sexuality. I mean, you know, when you, especially when you're a young child, you're growing, you grow into adolescence, into adulthood. I mean, this is a common experience where, you know, people are trying to figure out who they are and where they are and where they fit and all of these kinds of things. And to rethink the whole pattern uh, the, the way, you know, certain philosophies that are accepted in the universities and are filtering down into culture, yeah, they're troubling. Of course, the human condition is, it, there's a brokenness there. Uh, and again, we have an explanation for that. That is that human beings are fallen. They're sinful. Something is not right about the human state and the universe itself. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was Augustine that talked about disordered loves. And I think that's something many people struggle with. And, uh, and I think he was talking not so much that you love bad things, but sometimes you can love good things too much. That is such an important idea that, uh, you know, people gravitate towards certain things. They, they gravitate toward money. They gravitate toward sexuality. They gravitate toward fame and accomplishment. I mean, I mean, sex is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Food is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what do we do to them? We seek to misuse them so that finite temporal realities, we try to, we try to use them to fulfill us, which they were never intended to do. And that is that disordered love. Um, Human beings are lovers. Human beings are seekers. That we have desire and for fulfillment in life, but these normal things in the world are not enough. If you're made for God, only God will fulfill you. Mm-hmm. And whatever you're doing that is outside of God's will, uh, you are in the land of affliction. Well, that's right. I mean, to, to live a life uh, where you have disordered affections, to live a life that is disordered, means that there is always going to be a, a sense of angst. There is always going to be uh, a sense of a lack of fulfillment. I mean, you hear these stories about people who become famous, who have inordinate amounts of money. Everybody knows their name. Uh, and then they, then they realize, well, 
boy, I've got money and pleasure at my fingertips, but I don't feel fulfilled. Well, all of that's true if the Bible's true. Uh, that's exactly what we would expect if we were made for, for a purpose that moves beyond this world. Mm-hmm. Well said, Ken Samples. All right, let's, um, let's talk about abstractions. Yeah, now here we're, we're thinking about things like numbers and propositions and the laws of logic and universals, mathematics. These are, these are principles that we cannot see. We can't hear, smell, taste, and touch. But the universe seems to be written in the language of mathematics, uh, so much so that, that many famous scientists, even if they're secular, they will admit that the world seems to have a, a mathematical framework. I would say as a philosopher, the world has a logical framework that we can reason, we can think. Well, how do we explain these non-physical things? How, how, do, how is it that these operate kind of as a software for the hardware? Uh, and, how, and, and if there's no God, then how can we trust mathematics? How can we trust the laws of logic? And by the way, without the laws of logic, the law of identity, the, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, uh, you can't significantly think, speak, or act. So life wouldn't be intelligible without these things. But if God exists and he's made us as his creatures, and if logic and math flow from his mind, then the world appears to be the way it would be if the Bible is true. Ken, don't most astronomers and, and mathematicians, when they look at the the mathematical world, don't they stand in awe of the way things make sense and the way things are put together? Indeed they do. I mean, uh, I've met a number of leading mathematicians and they say that pro- they say that equations are elegant. They speak of them as they're aesthetic, they're, they're beautiful. And uh, the vast majority of them would clearly say that mathematics is, it is discovered, it's not invented. Well, if it's discovered, then it's built into the nature of the universe. And I would say the best explanation of that, that, that if there, there are these mathematical principles, that they came from a mind, an infinite mind, a cosmic mind. Mm-hmm. I would love, Ken, for you to say a little bit more about abstractions, because this is one I'm, I'm still wishing I knew more about or wishing I had a couple more illustrations. Yes. So in life, I mean, you know, you look, there's a table here. I have my computer. I have a telephone. These are physical things. There are mountains. There are clouds. But when we think about abstractions, we're, we're thinking about non-physical Things. We're talking about conceptual principles. Uh, you know, the, the law of non-contradiction says nothing can both be and not be. Uh, a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same way. Two plus two equals four. These are conceptual principles. They're non-physical principles. And yet, while these are not physical, they are uh, conceptual, 
they make life meaningful to us. Uh, if we didn't have them, life would, would not be intelligible. It wouldn't be meaningful. We wouldn't have an understandable existence. And, and just like we're looking to ground, well, why is the universe there? Why did it have a beginning? Why is it fine-tuned? Where did morality come from? Why does math work? Why, why are human beings capable uh, of logic, which, which seems to be beyond our, our brain and our mind? In my 10th grade algebra, cl algebra class, math didn't work. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it doesn't apply across the board, Ken, but I appreciate what you're saying. Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, Ken Samples is my guest. We're um, talking about how God's existence is so obvious in the cosmos and life and ethics and abstractions. We're going to continue our discussion. You can go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. We'll be right back. with Ken Samples. He's a philosopher and theologian. Always glad to talk to Ken. Get to do it once a month, usually the first Monday of the month. So I always look forward to that. And here we are. We're talking about do life's most meaningful realities point to God? The answer is unequivocally yes. And we're talking about uh, cosmos, life, ethics, abstractions. And now let's talk about religion. That's kind of a big one. It is a big one. It, it uh, you know, if there are seven and a half billion people in the world, about seven billion um, engage in some form of religion. Um, and I would add, by the way, that people who are not traditionally religious, they still look for philosophical answers to life. They, they still try to discover the meaning of life. But think about your religious experiences. Uh, Bill, you and I are, are Christians. We both have sensed at times God's distinct presence in our life. Maybe during a time of, of prayer, maybe a time of, of worship uh, in church, uh, we've at times seen the beauty of God or the beauty of the universe that we felt reflected God or our responsibility. I know in my church, we we talk about the Ten Commandments and that we've broken the commandments uh, and we need forgiveness and there is a, an accountability, a responsibility that I, I sense about myself. My changed life. I became a Christian uh, about 20 years, when I was 20 years old, and there was a change in my life, and a, a, a change, a profound change, so much so that uh, some of my friends who knew me for a long time said, wow, what, what, is, what is this new kin that we have, we have experienced? And of course, when we talk about religious experience, we can also go to the pages of the New Testament. And one of the profound things about Jesus, he's, he's the most 
he is the most uh, consequential figure who has ever lived. Uh, thus, we date things either before him or after him, A.D., B.C., but you look at the life of Jesus, he's not only a remarkable individual because of his own saintliness, his own holiness, uh, that he, he doesn't seem to have a broken nature the way the rest of us do. He doesn't seem to have a, a sinful disposition the way the rest of us do. But then he engages in the miraculous. He, he's able to heal people who can't walk. He's able to... Uh, to heal people who have leprosy. He reaches and puts his hands on a leper. Uh, I mean, in light of the pandemic, imagine, imagine people living as lepers where they are shut out of society and Jesus puts his hands on them and heals them um, all the way to the point of raising people from the dead. And Jesus seems to be motivated by people who are hurting people who uh, their physical suffering has got in the way of them having a meaningful life. And, you know, a, a, a leper couldn't even go to the temple. He would be completely shut out. But here is this, this man, if he would rightly be called a man, he engages in these supernatural things. And I can tell you, Bill, that there are also uh, books that have appeared documenting healings that have taken place, uh, uh, some extraordinary, and, and you can follow up with the details. Uh, I know uh, in 2003, I had six abscessed brain lesions, and uh, the, the mortality rate is 80%. And when my new doctor opens my big fat file, and he looks at the suffering, the illness I had, I remember one of the doctors said, somebody must have been watching over you. Mm. Well, um, these, are, these are supernatural experiences. And I don't think that secularists can merely say, well, supernatural things don't happen. Well, the universe came into existence. That's an extraordinary thing. Um, why, couldn't, why couldn't God make an appearance? And I love here what uh, theologian J.I. Packer said said about the incarnation. This is the idea that God became man in Jesus Christ, took a human nature, and was therefore the God-man, that this extraordinary story of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, it's greater than all of the themes that we find in fiction. Uh, you know, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing for human beings to walk on the moon, but what about God walking on the earth? I mean, that is an extraordinary miracle, a religious experience. Now, again, we tie these together, you know, C-L-E-A-R, these pointers to God, this abductive reasoning. What would, the, what would our lives, what would the world, what kind of experiences would we likely be having if God did exist, and if the Bible is giving us a reliable portrait? I think it's exactly this. Now, now, again, I don't present these as deductive proofs, although there are others who present arguments in that way. But what I'm arguing is abductive reasoning is the most common way we reason, and accepting Christianity as true seems to bring life together. Mm -hmm. When I think of this passage out of Matthew, out of Matthew 27, that said the next day 
the one after Preparation Day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. You were just talking about putting a man on the moon, but yet God himself walks the earth. And in this discussion, in this passage in Matthew, they're referring to him as the deceiver. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, uh, you know, if you think that life is difficult, it is. And Jesus had difficulties, too. He had difficulties in his family. Even his mother Mary, this extraordinary woman that gave birth uh, to the Son of God, uh, uh, his mother and some of his siblings, they said, we need to go take control over him. I, I, I suspect they thought maybe he had some kind of mental illness. And then he has problems with the very community, the religious community that he came as their Messiah. They view him as a deceiver. They don't deny that he did miracles, but it's because of Beelzebub. Mm -hmm. There is some kind of deceit going on. So if you've had a difficult life, if you have struggles in your life, the good news I have to offer to you is that so did Jesus. Therefore, we have a Savior with wounds. We have a God with wounds. We have a God who was a carpenter, who went to work, had, had a dysfunctional family, had religious problems. That comforts me, Bill, in the sense that life can be difficult, and I then have a, an, a, a, someone that I can speak to who knows the truth of these things. Mm -hmm. So, Ken, how, how can we square evil with God's goodness? I mean, I know there is usually always good in suffering as much as we don't like it, but I, I do know that there is, uh, God has goodness in mind despite evil. Well, I, I think we can begin right from square one. If there is evil in the world, and, you know, I mean, look at the war crimes we see. Look at boys and girls being a, being kidnapped and sold into a life of slavery, and tell me that's not evil. No, that that's no, completely evil. I don't. If, that, if there is see. an evil, there has to be a standard of goodness. Right. I'm not saying that there's good that comes out of those situations, because some of that is just pure evil, and there is no good. That's right. And it's not easy to answer the problem of evil. There's natural evil. There's moral evil. Then we ask the question, well, why so much evil? But I think what we can say, Bill, clearly is that if you believe there is evil in the world, then we live in a moral universe. And we can also see that there are times where bad things do bring good things. I mean, from Christian theology, we believe that Jesus's crucifixion, his suffering, and ultimately his death on the cross under the authority of Pontius Pilate, that brings salvation to all who believe. So one of the fundamental principles within Christian theology and philosophy is that God brings good things out of evil purposes. And he also, the world also allows us to have the freedom of the will and you can't have free creatures if you're not willing to accept that they may do wrong. Mm -hmm. Ken, this is always such an interesting discussion. I, I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to some of the points you made again, because uh, you gave, there's so much content in the show today. And I know you've done some deep thinking about all of these, and you've given us really a great explanation and a really strong apologetics approach to uh, how God's existence is demonstrated in the world. And again, if we use a clear 
as the word that would be the acronym for cosmos, life, ethics, abstractions, and religion. Just curious, when you hear the word religion, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I'm a professor of of world religion, so probably for me, I think about the, you know, the eleven uh, non-Christian religions uh, of the world. Okay. But I, but I know for many people, it's a negative thing. Um, some people see that as a rather than having an intimate relationship with God, they see it as, you know, uh, rules and and things that inhibit them. Mm-hmm. So good. Thank you so much, Ken Samples, once again, for being with me today. I look forward to our our visit next month. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Professor and theologian Ken Samples has been my guest. Go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken and the books he's written and the articles and the blogs. It's all there. All right, that wraps up uh, Maryland Monday. Thanks for joining me today. It's really been great to be with you, and I can't wait for tomorrow. I hope you have a great night as you lay your head on the pillow. Just know that God is working out his great plan in your life, and he loves you. I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.